I'm a schnauzer lover. You know, there's something about me that I, I wish uh, could be known. Um, it reminds me of this, uh, this neighbor that we have on our street. And, uh, sir, if you're visiting tonight, please uh, uh, forgive me. I'm about to insult you. But um, it's, this, it's this house where all of his uh, windows are open at night. And uh, he's got, like, neon beer lights in there. So the whole living room is pink and coors. And, uh, you know, it's this, this strange eerie. And uh, he's got sports flags, and it's kind of this, his whole house is this weird sports shrine. And every once in a while, he has his weirdo friends come over, and, and, uh, and uh, I say that in Christian love, of course. But, um, but uh, every time I drive past the house at night, I see it all lit up with the neon and stuff, and I think, what, dude, what are you doing? Obviously, there's no woman in his life, but uh, I, I wonder what this strange uh, structure is that this man is living in, you know? Well, we have to be very careful when we look at this passage in uh, Genesis 11 not to manufacture it into something that it isn't. Uh, This is not a treatise on why we should not build skyscrapers uh, or why we shouldn't live in an urban jungle. This is not some kind of of concrete uh, scriptural uh, advice uh, against uh, a space program. You know, we can't turn it into that. It's it's silliness to do that. But it is an important uh, story in the Bible, and this has been... A, a huge encouragement to me just studying it. Uh, there's a tremendous amount of life application in it, uh, but to grasp the significance of it, we have to kind of, kind of take it in context. You know, if you've, if you've embarked on reading the Bible, uh, you know, January's come and people jump in and, and here we are in Genesis, it, it, it surprises people how, how early on in the, in the Bible is, is Genesis 11. Well, not 11, the number 11, but the Tower of Babel, that story. Because you have, uh, you know, chapters... One, two, three, four, you've got uh, the story of uh, creation and the fall, Adam and Eve and all that. Then you've got uh, uh, a genealogy, an account from Adam to Noah in chapter 5. And then in 6, 7, 8, you've got the, the flood. And then God makes a covenant with Noah. And then there's this, uh, this kind of uh, uh, genealogy, this table of nations that you see happens in chapters 10 and 11. And boom, there's the Tower of Babel. And what you have in the, in the context... This, this has happened uh, right after the account of, of Noah being recorded. And sandwiched into that account are, are a couple of wonderful things. One of them is in chapter 10, um, starting in verse 8. You see that uh, chapter 10 is a story. It's the account of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, Noah's kids. And you see that uh, uh, Japheth, his, his lineage gets listed. And then Ham, his lineage gets listed. And Ham's grandson is Nimrod. All right, you see in verse 8, Nimrod, who grew to be a mighty warrior on the earth, he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. That is why it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The first centers of his kingdom were Babylon, uh, uh, Iraq, Achit, and all these other places. But the point is, I mean, you look at Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. He had his own slogan. People would go, man, that guy is strong. He's like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. This guy had his own slogan, pretty powerful. That was, I think, the first bumper sticker uh, in human history. But that's kind of like a little news flash. You know, you're in the middle of this, you're in the middle of this uh, uh, genealogy, and all of a sudden it's beep, 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 beep. We interrupt this story to tell you about Nimrod and, uh, and the slogan about him. Well, we get the same kind of a thing. You know, the, the, the genealogy continues. And then you get to chapter 11, and there's another breaking news story. And all of a sudden you hear about this, this culture, uh, uh, Babylon, Babel, uh, Shinar, the, 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 the region of Babylon, and uh, we, we, we hear this story. And, and uh, you know, of course, Babylon, you know, you, you see Shinar there. It's, it's, it's the uh, Babylonia. That's Babylonia. 
Uh, and of course, you know that that, that is uh, uh, traced all throughout Scripture uh, as, as the, the thing to point to concerning false religion. Uh, Revelation 17.5 uh, calls Babylon the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. That ain't good. And this is the first mentioning of this place. And that's why it's one of the, the, the critical points here. Um, and so we, we kind of get this little uh, story here. And, and a critical point is this. If you'd flip back a few pages to Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. Um, God creates man in his own image. He creates male and female. In, in verse 28 of Genesis 1, God, it says, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Uh, rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature uh, that moves on the ground. Now flip ahead to Genesis uh, chapter 9. Uh, verse 1. God blessed Noah and his sons. Okay, they, they come out of the ark. Their families. God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. The fear and dread of you will fall upon all the beasts of the earth and the birds of the air and every creature that moves along the ground and so on. Look at verse 7. As for you, be fruitful and increase in number, multiply on the earth and increase upon it. Well, in our passage today, the settlement on the plain of Shinar, Babylonia, was certainly in keeping with this command, weren't they? I mean, they uh, were fruitful, they increased in number, they multiplied, they had a community. Uh, obviously, they had city planners. You know, we tend to read, we, we tend to read of, uh, of uh, ancient cultures and we think, well, you know, they didn't have a light bulb and uh, we're so much more sophisticated. I'm telling you, they had city planners. They, uh, they were concerned about drainage and taking the trash out. Uh, they made bricks that mean, and, and they, they uh, baked them. That means they had a kiln. And they're not idiots. This is a, this is a culture that is being defined. Uh, and uh, when a culture starts to flourish, art starts art start to flourish and engineering starts to kick in. And this is an established culture. In a, in a sense, they were obeying uh, God. But a time came when there was a very specific problem. You look at verse 3. They said to each other in this, in this burgeoning uh, culture, they, they said to each other, come. Let, let's, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. What had God commanded? That they, that they subdue the earth. This means that they spread out. It doesn't mean that they huddle and cluster and, and, and get, get uh, uh, possessive of this, this, uh, this community. They, they build this tower so that they not be scattered. That, that's, a, that's a spiritual powder keg. Uh, you know, they, they say, let us build ourselves a city. Well, listen, what's wrong with building a city? Nothing's wrong with building a city. We built our city. Uh, nothing's wrong with that. Um, but the implication is seen by what follows, that we may make a name for ourselves. And, and, and we can't miss the point. You know, and, and I'll just say this too, um, just to put to rest this. I don't know how many uh, little Sunday school classes we've all heard where, where this story is handled and they say, they built a, you know, they treat it like, and she's buying a stairway. Okay, that's not what they're doing. 
Okay, they're not building a tower because they think, oh, we can climb up it and get to heaven or get up to the realm of the gods. They're not doing that. They're not idiots. Uh, in, in fact, uh, anybody heard that? Sunday school? That's, not the, that's not the point. I mean, mercy, why start at sea level? You know, why not go northeast for a little bit and start on a hill? You know, they're not idiots. They're not trying to build a tower so that they can climb up into the clouds. They're building a tower that reaches to the heavens so they may make, make a name for themselves. And see, that's the, that's the crux right there. That word name is, is such an important part about it. Uh, there's nothing wrong with rooting for one city. You know, I love hearing Memphis on the news uh, and Memphis quoted in songs. And I love that we have an NBA team. And yeah, I'm pro-Memphis. You know, there's nothing wrong with that. But the problem is these people are in direct violation of God's command. God commanded that they be scattered and subdue the earth. And they say, no, we want to make a name for ourselves. And, and we want to make our own name. And, and they want to, to disobey a command of God. Now, I'll, I'll tell you, I'll ask you, who named Adam? Who? God did. Uh, who named uh, the animals? Adam did. Who named, oh, this is good. Who renamed Abram and Jacob uh, and Saul? God did. Who, let me ask you this. Who named Eve? Adam did. Who named your kids? You did. And the, the point is, throughout Scripture, there is great significance in, in the idea of a name. God in his providence creates, he designs a relational, uh, a relational structure. He, he installs leadership and authority and responsibility that comes with that. And the giving of a name is a statement of, of somebody's leadership uh, over someone. And so what the, the significance of these people saying, well, we don't want to do that. We want to make a name for ourselves is that they're saying we want to take that back in for our own selves. We want to run things. We don't want God to, to be in charge of all of it. We don't want anybody's interference, especially God's. Well, um, you, look at, you look at their heart attitude. Uh, in verse 3, they said, they said to each other, Come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. Uh, uh, they say in verse 4, Come, let us build ourselves a city. What does the Lord say? He sees this. What does he say in verse 7? Come. Oh, you oh, really? Here, come. Let us go down and confuse their language so that they won't understand. What does it say in verse 5? But the Lord, it came on down. So the people are going, come, let's do this. Come, let's do this. And the Lord goes, mm -hmm. okay, come. <laughs> we, we'll, we'll up that. And we see a little portrait of the way God operates. I mean, does He mean what He says? Yeah. Uh, he'll even come on down to make sure it happens. Now, my question is, why does God, why does the Bible record uh, God's activity in this way? I mean, you look at verse 5. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the men were building. Why does the Bible portray God in that way? I mean, really, is it a, is it a knock against God's sovereignty? Is it a knock against the, the fact that God is all-powerful, that He's everywhere present, that He knows all things, He's omniscient? Is it a knock against those things? Why does the Bible, in many places, re record God's activity that way, where God comes down to kind of check it out? It's not, that, it's not that God is surprised. It's that this book is written for us in terms that we can understand. Uh, anthropology is a study of man. This is written in anthropomorphic language. 
This, this book is written in language that we can understand. When the Bible talks about God as having a, uh, an ear that's not too dull to hear. Does that mean that God has a, an ear the size of Texas? No. Does it mean when, when the Bible says his, uh, his arm is not too short to save? Does God have a big, huge arm? He does not. The Bible teaches us that God is spirit. And the, but the reason the Bible speaks in those terms, uh, as, a, as a heavenly father that, that sees us, as a, as a God that scoops us up and would hold us to his breast, the reason the Bible uh, portrays God in that way is because we can understand we go, oh, oh, I understand those kinds of things. It's written in anthropomorphic language, which is why it says the Lord came on down to see what they were building. We, we understand the, that God comes down and, and, and searches it out. There's another reason it's written in that way. Um, um, look at the end of verse 4. The people, they, they say, um, hmm, come let us uh, build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens. And the Bible says, uh, you know, here they are, a tower that reaches to the heavens. And, and the, the, it's kind of sarcastic. It's almost like God's going, uh-huh. Oh, really? Where's that tower that reaches to the heavens? I've got to bend down to even get a look at it. Oh, you're building the tower to the heavens? I'll come on down to look at your big tower. You know, we, we fly to Chicago a couple times a year to see my parents. And as you fly in, I mean, the Sears Tower looks like a toothpick. It's almost as if God is saying, oh, nice structure. Wow, all the way to the heavens? Where is it? I, I, I don't see it. Sarcasm. There's another reason um, that, that, that uh, the Bible would portray it this way. Is that um, the Lord comes down to see the city, see the tower that the men were building. This happens over and over in Scripture. The, the, where the Bible wants to portray, goes out of its way to portray God as a God who just doesn't make judgments. But a God who makes judgments in truth. A God who makes judgments that are righteous. He just doesn't punish. He just doesn't scatter people. He just doesn't confuse languages. He comes down. The Bible says that he, he takes a survey of the whole thing. He checks it out. He, he acts in righteousness. And that's another reason that the Bible puts uh, things in that way. Of course, God has an answer to their work. Um, uh, God says, come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. Um, I want to show you something that I stole from a smart guy that stole it from a smarter guy. And uh, this, this is an outline. And I'll tell you that um, all these smart dudes love outlines. They love kind of cramming everything into an outline. And they love showing you how symmetrical everything's written. And, And a lot of times it's really, really forced in there. But this is a... This is a beautiful portrayal of the passage at hand. I've wept over this thing like twice already. Uh, you look at you look at the way God operates. I mean, we see a we see a portrait of who God is and how He operates and how He deals with people and wickedness and and all that. You know what what happens in verse one? You have a statement about the whole earth having one language. Well, it's it's not uh, it's not uh, a coincidence that at the end. You have the language of the whole earth confused and the people scattered. So here you've got the people. Oh, we have one language. Uh, Come, let us do this. Come, let us do that. Let's make a monument, make a name for ourselves. The end of the story is, oh yeah, that's not what God wanted. I I guess he was able to work out the details. All right, then you look here. you've You've got a people that don't want to leave there. You know, they've got a nice there. 
They don't want to leave there. They, they want to be together there. What happens? God sends them away from there. Uh, they cling to each other. They, they don't want to leave one another. They have the society. They're bound to one another. What does God do? He, uh, he mixes up their language, each other's language. This is another wonderful thing. You know, you wonder why things in the Scriptures... You know, you get these, these strange little uh, tidbits like, uh, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They use brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Well, how, who, how many people memorize that verse? It really spoke to your heart. Why is that in there? They use brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Well, part of it is, part of it is geographical. There were no stones to cut. And so what they did is they made bricks and they baked them and that's, that, that's what they had to do to build structures. But what's so amazing about that is, what do you do if you have to make bricks? You know, you get some dry, powdery, muddy stuff and you mix it with the goopy stuff and you throw in the straw and then what do you do? You mix it on up. <laughs> and so you see the, 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 the symmetry in the passage. Let's make some bricks. We're going to mix them all up and, and bake them and build our structure. And God goes, oh, really? That's a really interesting plan. I'm going to mix up your languages. <laughs> then you've got these people that say, let's build for ourselves a city and a tower. And God goes, oh, really? The city and the tower which you had built? What's the crux of the whole story? I mean, what is the big event that changed everything? The big event is that. The Lord came down. But the Lord came down. You know, the imperial event that changed His people's rebellion into the the desired outcome that God had planned out was the fact that the Lord came on down and He made His will take place. Oh, the people had another plan and all that, but the Lord came down and He bucked their system and bucked it with such beauty, even in the way the narrative is recorded. That's the hand of a, of a sovereign God. Uh, let me show you a couple quick things. and um, uh, Turn to Daniel, if you will. Go to Psalms and hang a hard right. Daniel. Uh, chapter 4. This... Uh, this is no accident either, the locale of this uh, story. Uh, Daniel chapter 4, verse 29. Uh, Twelve months later, as the, uh, the king had a dream, and he had the dream interpreted. Uh, Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, Is not this the great Babylon? I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty. The words were still on his lips when a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken away from you. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. Immediately, what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people, ate grass like cattle. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. 
At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified Him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as He pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back His hand or say to Him, What have you done? Look at verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the King of heaven because everything He does is right and all His ways are just and those who walk in pride, He is able to humble. Now that is a portrait of the one true God. If you would like a life application, I'll give you one. Turn to almost the end of the Bible to the book of James. Hebrews and then James. Uh, chapter 4, verse 13. Here, here's life application. This is an exact, here's what you should do, coming right from the Scriptures. Chapter 4, verse 13. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. That's our life application. What we ought to do is say, you know, Deo Valente. If it is the Lord's will, we will go and do this thing. Oh, yes, let's plan. You know, let's, let's use our faculties. Well, let's head in a certain direction. Let's, let's use all of our resources. But, but our hard attitude should be, as the Lord wills it, He's in control anyway, and it is hard to kick against the goats. Um, I don't know if anybody saw this. I wish I had it huge on the screen. But did anybody see this, uh, this statue that fell down in India? Yes, it was on the front page of the New York Times uh, on January 9th, Thursday, Thursday the 9th. And I know it's hard to see, but this right here is a body, okay, that used to be this way. And these little pointy things on here are people, all right? So the people are about the size of, of, of a finger of this statue. And it's a statue of the Hindu god, Lord Krishna. They worked on this thing for six years. And what happened? It fell over. Isn't that a shame? Wow. I mean, why? It sounds, it sounds a lot like Dagon, doesn't it? You know, when the Philistines steal the Ark of the Covenant and they stick it next to their God and, and they go, oh, shoot, Dagon fell over. <laughs> Oops. Now, what happened to our God? And, uh, you know, he does it again. I mean, you look at this guy. His head's broken. His arms are broken off. And people are walking on top of him. They've got to bust him up into pieces and put him away. This is their God. You know why he fell over? A poor foundation was blamed for the collapse. I almost jumped for joy in the Starbucks when I saw that picture. I got, I, I, this is taped on the back of my office door. And I looked at that and it was so convicting to me because I thought, oh yeah, we'll laugh and point our finger at that. But we got all kinds of those guys standing up or wanting to stand up and we want to prop them up and they keep falling down. We don't like it. We want to prop them up again. We got all kinds of Lord Krishnas floating around our, our existence. We tend to see the big one and think, oh, well, I've got two or three problems. But we're in a constant battle 
in all, all facets of life. Um, I got another quote I want to read you. Um, oh, th- th- this is, this is, I- I'm going to read you two things from this book, uh, but I-, I don't think you'll be bored. This is about the passage in Genesis 11. Here, here you have these people, God, God's told them to do a certain thing. He's told them to, to, to disperse. He's told them to subdue the land. He's, he's given them a clear direction, but they feel this resistance to it. They don't want to do it. And, and they're really not even talking about it except let's build this tower and kind of build a monument to us. And, and you know, their hard attitude was, guys, let's just stay here. I mean, really, we're all safe here. We've got a wonderful community. It's, it's flourishing. I mean, why? Here's what this guy writes. Long before the judgment of dispersion fell on them, long before God dispersed them, men already had a premonition, a dim fear that they might break apart and that even their languages might be confused. They sensed the hidden presence of centrifugal dispersive forces. Uh, This arises from the fact that they have suffered something that might be called the loss of a center and that now they have banished God from, now that they've banished God from their midst, They no longer have anything that binds them to each other. Always the trend is the same. Wherever God has been deposed, some substitute point has to be created to bind men together. And he goes on. These are substitute ties, conclusive attempts to replace the lost center with a synthetic center. Isn't that exactly what we do? The the lost center. When God is not at the center, then what do we do? We replace it with a synthetic center. But this attempt is doomed to fail. The centrifugal forces go on pulling and rending and a hidden bomb is ticking in the piers of all the bridges. <laughs> I mean, that, that's what we have. we have. We have bridges that are built and we have, we've all, have all these plans that are laid out and we're on our, the bridge that we built and we have a synthetic center, but there's, there's a bomb ticking in every pier that holds up that bridge and it's going to look like that fallen down statue. Uh, don't turn, but um, this is the God of heaven. This is how the God of heaven responds to uh, those who, who would take a stand against him. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand. The rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Oh, rise up. Oh, build a tower. Build a statue. The God of heaven looks at resistance toward him and goes, <laughs> Yeah, right. You know the little white crabs in Destin? Fun to chase them a little bit, isn't it? They're afraid of you. But then, after a while, they've had enough. You know? You do that a few times and they finally turn around. They give you the old, you know, they're ready to go. What do you do? You go, <laughs> that's good. That's good. With my bare feet, I could still, these don't scare me. That's what God does to those who would, who would oppose Him. To the proud who would shake their fist in His face. I, I, I bring us to a close with this. There is, a, there is a, an even greater perspective that we can, that we can have here. You know, um, in Acts 2, uh, verse 11, Pentecost, what happens? They say, 
We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? This is Pentecost. The Holy Spirit comes upon the apostles and the people go, we understand Him in our own tongues. Ethiopian, wow! Can you imagine having been there? You know, all of a sudden, your brother's going, you know, and the other guy's going, hey, Fraulein, you know, everybody's hearing people in their own tongues. Oh my goodness, what's happened? That, ladies and gentlemen, is a foretaste. That's the beginning. That's the thing for which we, to, to which we look forward to. In an ultimate sense, ladies and gentlemen, our Christ will come again. And a day will come. You know, history is groaning for that. Uh, our, our little dog, Mary, we'll let her outside. And uh, when it's time to come in, I'll go and I'll see her at the screen door. And that little, she's a lassapoo, so she's teeny and kind of jittery. And so she's wagging her tail so hard that she's got to counterbalance with other body movements so she doesn't fall over. And she's got this kind of a shaky excitement thing. And she's whining. And when I get toward the door, she'll give it a... She's got all these things going. She's groaning. She's groan. She sees her master coming and she, she's just groaning. That's all of creation. And it's certainly the redeemed heart, ladies and gentlemen. We're groaning for the day when our Master comes. He will come again. And, and a day will come when sin is judged and put away forever. A day will come when we enjoy our, our Savior. Without the streaks and blur and cloudiness of sin, we'll behold Him in His glory. But among the other things for which we long is, is, is this truth. A time will come, says the Bible, when God, I, God, will restore to the peoples a pure language that they all may call on the name of the Lord to serve Him with one accord. That day will come when without the baggage of sin, the people will be given a pure language that we will finally be in accord. That's in Zephaniah 2, by the way. We will finally be in accord and, 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 and be together and be expressing simultaneously and rightly the glory that is due God. My last thing and I'll quit. God's restoration of community. That's what we just talked about. God's restoration of community will be seen in its fullness when once again men and women from every tribe and tongue and people and nation gather together with other living creatures from earth and heaven around a throne overarched by the light of a rainbow. And they gather with one voice to sing the praise of the Lamb. Worthy art Thou, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for Thou didst create all things, and by Thy will they existed and were created. And so we read that story. And we think of our ultimate end. And our hearts can pray along with uh, the Apostle John. Amen, Lord Jesus. We're glad you're coming back. But even so, make haste. Come for your people. Creation and, and we groan for the return of our Master. Lord Jesus, indeed we do groan for the day when you will return. And we understand that we live uh, between Calvary and uh, the second coming.
And as much as we long for that day, we thank you that uh, your Holy Spirit is real and uh, dwelling in the hearts of your people. We thank you, O oh God, that uh, even as we are seated in this room and many of us don't know many other people in here, there is still a sense that redeemed people have been collected up and we groan for the day when we will have a pure language, one voice in accord that will cry out with joy, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. For we pray it in your name. Amen. Thanks, everybody.